Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And this episode, we are going to be looking at waterproofs, the history of waterproofs, how we have come from being up trees, soaked to the skin, wondering how long it's going to be to the end of this shower, to a point where we can now be on the deck of our boats at sea, warm, dry, and pretty happy that uh, we're going to be able to make it to the end of the watch without succumbing to hypothermia. So how exactly has that come about? And uh, what are the various options that are out there for us? Remember, Gore-Tex has become pretty ubiquitous with all this stuff, but there are a couple of other options. And sometimes it's good to take a closer look at those and realize that maybe you don't have to pay out all the money in your bank account all at once to get waterproofs. Maybe there are some other options available. Now, going into this, I would like to say that I am sponsored by Heli Hansen, and I do have some of their oceanware here I've got their A-Gear Offshore Waterproof uh, Jacket and and, uh, and Bibs, uh, the Salopets. It's great gear. Um, I'm definitely not so bold over that I'm going to be climbing up into Hallie Hansen's lap and just telling them everything they want to hear. They were awesome with me and said, you know, if you've got feedback, then please provide it. The A-Gear line of waterproofs has been out for a while, but of course... There will be another model and they'll take uh, they'll take some feedback if they can get it. So I'm going to be giving that a fair rundown. I've been using it now for five months. I haven't actually been to sea in it, which you might think, oh, well, <laughs> how can he how can he give feedback on that? But I've been using a lot on the boat. I've been doing a lot of things in it, including like gardening and stuff. And I can tell you how it moves, how it works, how it wears. And the good thing for me is that uh, you know, obviously I've done enough miles that I can spot the weaknesses before I ever leave the dock with this stuff. So I'm uh, looking forward to being able to talk about that. But I thought that as always, a bit like we did with the uh, the episode about the back toe life jacket from Timo, instead of just trying to do a gear review, let's have a look at how this stuff came about. And um, the history of rain gear is perhaps a little bit more interesting than you than you might think. I hope so, because we've got, we've got an hour and 20 minutes of it. So let's see what we can do with that. Let's dive in. So rain gear has obviously been something that we've been working towards as a species for for a little time now a little time we've uh, we've all realized pretty quickly that uh, being wet and horrible is not great even in warm areas even when that rain starts to come down uh, you know you can end up pretty uh, pretty uncomfortable so the first kind of discussion around rain gear and how to stay out from underneath the rainstorm we see evidence of that in uh, china and the first um poems and and pictures and kind of uh, anything relating to to ways of staying dry we first see those about a thousand ce and these early versions of waterproofs of of outerwear were very very simple kind of um panels there's no other way of putting it really panels of a straw or grass woven together to create some kind of uh, structure which you could carry on your body and then give yourself a little bit of protection when you need to in the rain um, but there was no usability and no wearability to it and if i think i've ever seen these if you've seen the film crouching tiger hidden dragon there's a bit in that where one of the characters jade fox is moving along through the rain and she has a, a very wide brim straw hat which might be you know the kind of ubiquitous headdress of of that region at that time but then she's also got this like wide panel of woven, looks like palm fronds or something like that, which she's just holding over her back. So it doesn't seem to be very much better than basically getting like a sheet of cardboard and holding a sheet of cardboard 
over your back so that you can keep out of the worst of the rain. So it is not a very uh, great way to be trying to protect yourself. There weren't many options, to be absolutely honest. Um, when we started to see options was when we finally made our way into South America and then we started to uh, get an understanding that the South Americans were using latex and this is a kind of rubberized, you know, what you think of latex today that comes naturally from a tree. It's something you can tap and then you can dry it out and you get yourself rubbery material, which um, is then fantastic for coating things. And as soon as Europeans were down in South America and started to realize what the, uh, the indigenous people were doing to waterproof their clothing, they realized very quickly, this is awesome. So starting to get basic fibers, basic woven materials, and then add some kind of waterproofing layer on it. That was the thing that started to happen once we had already been down into South America, which is like the 1700s. So what were people doing before that? The, the only other options that anybody really had for staying dry, if it wasn't uh, using uh, rubberized products and vulcanization, which came later on, the only other thing they had really was uh, to coat it in linseed oil or coat it in paraffin wax um, to, to put some kind of uh, petroleum-based outer on it or I guess beeswax that's also uh, you know wax from from candles from beeswax candles but later on from paraffin wax to get these things rubbed into the uh, a close woven material like a, a duck uh, duck cotton which is a, a close woven uh, sort of um, a canvas to get those and then rub in on the outside so when do we most likely see that still these days? A barber jacket, those wax jackets that you can get, very kind of, um, they really epitomize outdoor British traditional life. If you want to kind of look at it that way, they've got gold zips and they've got tartan interiors and they've got big poachers pockets inside. And then they're, they're very heavy, um, but they, they do they do offer fantastic waterproofing and the great thing is that you can reapply that by just literally getting a tub of the stuff yourself from the manufacturer and, and putting it on so something like a waxed jacket would be uh, a good identifier of like what people were doing quite a long time ago the other one would be uh, dry as a bone now dry as a bone is an australian brand and that um that kind of material that they're using in that is more like an oiled cotton so oiled cotton would be, you know, again, a duck duck canvas or a duck cotton, which has then been coated with linseed oil. And throughout a lot of this, you're going to see linseed oil coming up uh, again and again. The great thing with linseed oil is that it will dry out over time. And uh, if you work on traditional ships, you'll often find that the rigging is coated in rigger's varnish, which is half varnish and half linseed oil. Um, if you were to use other kinds of oils, it, oils, it would just never set. But linseed oil dries out and dries out to a point where obviously you've got like a coating, a, a, a malleable uh, coating, which can infuse itself somewhat into the material and create this waterproofing coat. So dry as a bones were started in the 1800s when a, a Scottish chap named Edward Lee Roy, uh, not Leroy, but Lee and the new word Roy, Edward Lee Roy, emigrated to New Zealand. Um, he had already learned how to manufacture uh, oil skins, this kind of uh, linseed infused cotton. Uh, he'd already learned how to do that. So he started up a, 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 a company called Leroy, um, or Leroy, I guess it was by then. And um, Leroy had these garments uh, in, extra, you know, in, in circulation. Uh, but there was a, a couple of issues with them. And the, one of the issues was the fact that the linseed oil would dry out so far. Once it was off a ship and it was 
no longer being used. Like the original coats were made from um, sh uh, the, the sails of uh, sailing ships. And then uh, this uh, linseed oil was put onto them. But the issue was they would dry out terribly in the, in the summer and in dry conditions. And they're also flammable when you were around the, the campfire, which is often an issue with uh, anything that's got uh, wax coating on it. So a chap called uh, E.J. Pearson, who's the son of T.E. Pearson, which is Pearson Soaps, if you know them, they're out of uh, New Zealand. He took a consignment of those coats and uh, he worked on his own basically to create a new coating material. I'm, wondering, I'm guessing he was kind of borrowing from the soap industry that he knew. His father was was T.E. Pearson, knew a lot about that. Um, and he, uh, he made a new coating, which that coating now, whatever that mix is exactly, it's hard to find anywhere online what that is. It's a mix of linseed and some other materials, which I guess make it a lot more uh, flame retardant, which is a good thing if you're going to be around a uh, campfire of an evening. You don't want to be riding hard as a cattleman in Australia all day and then you're becoming a human torch at night. So uh, dry as a bone, you've got oiled stuff. We can see that today. I've actually got a dry as a bone uh, coat here with me now. It's it's a podcast, so I'm kind of struggling to understand exactly why I've brought all these jackets with me. You can just listen to the rustling noises in the background, but I think what I wanted to do was look at some of the, the features. I was thinking I might start to film uh, these uh, podcasts as well, but I, I, I suspect that something like this is better done in a, in a full-on gear review rather than watching a guy with headphones on talking into a microphone trying to manipulate uh, jackets. None of that seems like that's going to add up very well, but uh, the dry, dry bones here as well. And then the other thing that I've got here is something which is closer to uh, the Macintosh, the original Macintosh, which was developed by uh, Charles Macintosh. Uh, now, when did he start to that? That kind of rubberized material. So they had worked out, uh, this was looking at like 1880, around that sort of period of time. They'd started to work out that they could get the uh, latex, which this latex tree had been discovered in South America. Now it's being grown all over the place. Obviously, latex has gone on to become a big part of the materials we work with today but they worked out how to impregnate it into the fabric um, and uh, probably these days uh, polyester cotton mix material but it's got this gas tight uh, watertight sealing on it and obviously then the seams are separately sealed alongside that so the thing that became uh, interesting with the uh, development of rainwear is that it also gives rise to a lot of the fashions which were around. So if you start to look at like, let's think of um, Sherlock Holmes, like what was Sherlock Holmes actually wearing when he's, he's wandering around, he's got that crazy deerstalker hat on and he's got that big Meerschaum pipe and then he's got that weird like cape thing that he's wearing as well. So uh, the cape thing that he was wearing is actually a kind of jacket called an Ulster and they had that cape that kind of flowed down over the over the shoulders and down for the ulsters came down to about the arms and then a long coat going down to well just above your kind of your mid mid calf something like that so a really big protected piece of clothing but why did it have that extra cape on it it's because while they were using a lot of linseed oil infused uh, materials they were using wax materials the issue was always the seam and a jacket will always have seams around the collar and then it will have seams running across the shoulders and it'll have seams where the sleeves are attached onto the main body of the jacket so the capes which were made all in one piece could be attached uh, quite high up on the coat, you've got a hat with some kind of brim on it, you've got a collar, and then you've got this cape which goes down over those very sensitive seams, which it was just impossible at the time to seal up. So you end up with this 
elaborate piece of clothing if it had slightly longer uh, arms on it then instead of being called an ulster then it's more popularly known as an inverness and you'll often find if people are in um, playing the the bagpipes and they've got the, the the proper gear on to to keep them dry and having they'll often be wearing an inverness cape which is a longer one coming down below the elbows but the ulster very quickly became um more popular because it allowed freer movement of your arms so those capes and all that stuff was early attempts to seal the issue of of things leaking through the seams a similar thing to that is the um the sou'wester like as sailors of course we're all meant to know what a sou'wester is but a few little clicks on um on youtube and a few clicks on wikipedia and my own uh, experience at sea and i know that the sou'wester <laughs> is uh it's a traditional form of hat made again from um, this oiled uh, fabric, this oil cloth, uh, oil skins. We've got a lot of very similar kind of words all flowing around here as different manufacturers and different patterns take over. But it's a waterproof hat. We all know what it is. It's the one with a very long uh, kind of uh, back to it and then kind of a shorter front. Often the front has got wire made into it so you can double it up and make it into a gutter, which is, we'll be talking about that. There's quite a lot of features on these Mon jackets that are, historically you know they've, they've got in there through hundreds of years of history that wired um, brim at the front and being able to turn that up to keep the uh, the hood or the hat out of your eyes and then allow the water to gutter off on either side rather than just running straight over the front of you um, the sou'wester was a, a british uh, fisherman's hat and then there was uh, some very interesting uh, things here on the uh, wikipedia page which was saying that the uh, the the southwest name comes from the fact that the prevalent winds uh, coming into the uk would be from the southwest or the heavy winds certainly that kind of makes sense coming in via the gulf stream from the atlantic into the southwest and approaches and up the uh, up the irish sea and up the english channel that lot now it says that a fishing net would always be brought up in the lee of the wind so that makes sense right the boat turns you bring up the so that means the wind is whipping across the deck and whipping uh, over the back of your head so this hat was developed which then gave an interface between the hat and whatever was the oil skin or protective clothing that you're wearing and covered the gap between the head and the jacket they weren't into hoods at this point they were still into hats hoods hadn't kind of and they obviously the robin hood story might not but kind of made its way to sea but um they uh the longer thing at the back would stop all of the nasty water going down the back of your neck and freezing you out so it would be an oil skin hat with a long back and a short front is your sou'wester so again they were trying to use clever mechanical methods to cover up gaps where seams or skin would be exposed because they just they hadn't got any other real solutions. Design had to catch up with uh, with the requirement. But it is interesting, all this, that we are looking at something which, as we found out in other podcasts, people have been out at sea and on the water for, you know, thousands of years, if not tens of thousands of years. Um, but the idea of trying to get the, uh, <laughs> make it comfortable and, and do it in such a way that you're going to enjoy it, that's all very, very new. You think like, uh, you know Charles McIntosh working out how to vulcanize uh, the fabric and um, sandwich the uh, core of rubber between uh, uh, softened by naphtha between two pieces of fabric. That that thing that he came up with that is 1824. That's that not very long ago. That's 200 years ago. So we are very lucky to be living in a period of time where we have uh, all of these technologies all uh, ready to ready to go and we can use them whenever we want. 
as we start to come up into the Mon period, as we get to the 1940s and 50s and DuPont start to push polyester and nylon and all these other things, what becomes apparent very, very quickly is that you can create waterproof materials using uh, modern synthetic fabric, uh, fibers, uh, make fabrics from the fibers, and then they're also going to have the added benefit of that they don't rot, they don't get um, you know, all that black nasty discoloration that you'll start to get. That was a big issue for sales and all sorts of clothing and things uh, further back, and it was one of the things they were trying to sort out when they went to nylon. Obviously, these days, maybe we're starting to realize that wearing all polyester and nylon stuff all the time is not a very smart idea. You actually need to um, make sure that you don't do that because otherwise you can end up scaring irritation. But they're at a point where they would just get us out of the wet. We are sick of being wet. What have you got? And obviously these newer fabrics were perfect. So the revolution, which really is uh, a biggest deal to us, comes in 1969. And in 1969, you get the first development of what we now know as Gore-Tex. So what is Gore-Tex? Gore-Tex is expanded polytetrafluoroethylene. So PTFE, we know PTFE because we find it in that tape that we wind around threads when we're putting uh, uh, hydraulics and, and uh, you know anything that ain't fitting completely properly, it's getting a bit of PTFE tape. That stuff is Teflon, so that kind of super slippery stuff. What happened was that this guy, Bob uh, Gore, was uh, looking to, I don't know what exactly Bob Gore was up to, but whatever it was, he was getting pretty frustrated because he had been trying to stretch and create these um, different kinds of fibers, these different polymers. Um, obviously, it, he, he'd been doing this for quite a while, and it comes down to a very human moment where he was getting frustrated with what he was doing. And instead of doing a slow stretch on the poly tetrafluoroethylene that was in front of him, he moved it very, very fast. He jerked it out and that created a completely different um, uh, expanded uh, material. It was 800% uh, stretched from where it was. It formed a microporous structure and that was about 70% air. And that uh, expanded polytetrafluoroethylene became available to the public under the brand name of Gore-Tex. So Gore-Tex arrives thank god and then we have to go from being wet and soaked and and crying about it to uh bringing all of our jackets back to the shop because <laughs> because they don't work and the seams leak and this stuff's rubbish and all the rest of it um i can talk about this a little bit from the point of view when i was uh let me see early 20s i worked for blacks which is a outdoor equipment shop in the uk and um it was just at a point where there was a couple of other things on the market there was was it called Hydronet? There was um, triple ceramic from Low Alpine. There was two ply Gore-Tex. There was three ply Gore-Tex. There was there was all sorts of different things. It was early two thousands, I guess it would be. Um, since then, it's kind of settled down now into that. If you're if you're paying top whack for for your waterproof gear, you've got um, three layer Gore-Tex going into it. And if you're gonna make a choice to you know to pay less than that then you're going to get some kind of other membrane which is not as breathable and breathable is the thing which really is the make or break with Gore-Tex so I can fill some of this in uh, myself as having been a salesman for blacks and having to do training for Gore and all the rest of it the great thing with Gore-Tex is of course that uh, it is fantastic at allowing moisture from the surface of your skin to find its way out through all of the layers back into the exterior environment. Once that happens, any moisture that's inside you will breathe off and then 
uh, you are left nice and warm and dry, even if you're sweating or all the rest of it, and you feel a lot more refreshed. If you're wearing something like uh, oiled um, oiled cotton or oil skins made with linseed rubbed in, then you're going to have a, uh, a solution there, a waterproofing solution, which does not allow your skin to breathe very much. So you can end up feeling, I don't know if you've ever done like, um, you go out like bushwhacking and you end up with one of those bivouac bags. It's like a giant heavy rubble bag that a contractor might use and you get into that for the night and yeah you're warm but when you wake up in the morning you're also saturated wet which can be very dangerous in a in a survival situation what Gore-Tex does it provides this opportunity to um to I think the right word is transpire although I think that is more to do with plants but maybe someone can correct me but there's you can get this water vapor out from underneath the Gore-Tex so let's let's just look at that for a second because that can cause quite a lot of issues one thing I will say, Gore-Tex uh, is not 100% uh, absolutely waterproof and it won't let anything else in. If you sit on Gore-Tex for a long period, particularly if you're sitting on like a seam or if you're sitting on um, a, a rope which is pressing hard into your bum or something like that, the pressure at that point can actually allow moisture to make its way through the Gore-Tex. Um, I will say if you're sitting on the deck of the boat, if you're sitting on the side of something, try and find some way of getting the water from uh, just sitting around. You could have water in a bag made of Gore-Tex and the water's not going to come out. But if you start pressing and massaging and moving that membrane around, it is, you know, it's an expanded polytetra uh, fluoroethylene uh, foam, essentially, and the moisture is going to make its way through the foam, okay? So if you're sitting on the deck of the boat, what I'll often advise people to do is just grab any rope and just zigzag it backwards and forwards and make a kind of little thing on the, on the deck that looks like you made yourself a little mat and then sit on that. And then the water will come and then the water will flow away, but it will flow away to a level lower than the rope that you're sitting on and then you're not sitting directly on your Gore-Tex bottoms in the water creating the opportunity for uh, the pressure of your ass on the deck to push the water through your Gore-Tex. So that can be something that's useful there. If you're hiking, not really for us as boaters, but if you're hiking and you've got Gore-Tex jacket and you've got the straps of a rucksack or something cutting into a shoulder, again, a good opportunity there for the pressure of the straps to push the water through the Gore-Tex, then you end up wet on the inside. The other thing that happens, of course, with Gore-Tex is that um, suddenly you're not breathing properly. That doesn't seem to breathe. I'm getting soaking wet in here. How's that happening? It happens in a couple of different ways. Number one, Gore-Tex works, as I say, between uh, 10 and about 70% uh, humidity. If it's super humid outside, there is no reason for the water vapor that's inside your gear to want to go to the outside. There's no gradient for it to move across. There's no moisture gradient. It is just as moist outside as it is inside. So you can sweat your bits off on the inside and it's never gonna make its way through the jacket. It's technology, it's not magic. You know, that'll, that'll come later hopefully. But the point is that if the humidity is very, very high or actually tangentially, if it's very, very low, it'll, um, it, it, you know, you have a problem. Now, if the humidity is very, very low, it's probably not raining, so don't worry about it too much. But if you, if it's very, very wet outside, you're going to be just as wet on the inside. Something I learned using Gore-Tex gear a lot in uh, Hong Kong, where the humidity is 100%, it's like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm dry from the downpour, but I'm now completely soaked by my own sweat, because it's also 36 degrees here. So that can be a point also where you suddenly find that you're wet on the inside. 
The other thing is that the face fabric, the kind of the colored fabric that you're looking at when you're looking at the outside of it, the exterior, remember this is three layer Gore-Tex, you've got a number of different layers in it. The outside layer, which is your face fabric, is uh, it, it has the possibility, it is not waterproofed in itself. The fabric on the outside is getting its waterproofing from the Gore-Tex membrane, which is inside the face fabric. So the face fabric itself can allow moisture through its outer surface. Does that make sense? If you took the material that's on the outside of a Gore-Tex jacket, just that outside scrim of material, that stuff is not waterproof. So how does it add into all this? Well, it gives structure and it gives color and it gives all the, you know, the, the design cues that you can't just have something made out of uh, Gore-Tex membrane. It should be basically wearing like a, a very thin, very easily damaged, like rubber bag, basically. So the exterior fabric is the thing that's giving you the structure of the jacket. But then on the outside of that is this DWR coating, this durable water repellent coating, which is on the outside, which is put in uh, at the point of manufacture. And then it's your responsibility to keep updating during the life of the Gore-Tex um, that you own. So the uh, main thing that uh, you can see when you look at another member of your crew is that the if the face fabric of their Gore-Tex jacket is now getting darkened and there's obviously water uh, absorbing into it, that means at that point that the breathability of the Gore-Tex is done. The breathability of the, only, of the Gore-Tex is only possible when that sponge-like material of the Gore-Tex membrane is not being pressurized and is not being uh, uh, kind of uh, screwed up by the fact that there's just as much humidity on the outside as the inside. And when the face fabric is dry and moisture is being kept away from it by the durable water repellent coating that's on the outside of it. It will wear off over time as you rub up against things and your arms rub against the side of your body and you sit up and down, all the rest of it, pull the jacket in and out of wherever it lives. That stuff is being um, kind of rubbed off the jacket. When it's gone, the outer fabric will then wet out. And while she won't be getting wet on the inside because the uh, moisture won't be able to like find its way straight through the Gore-Tex um, layer on the inside, it'll no longer be breathable. So for the jacket to be doing what it's meant to be doing, you need to be in a particular humidity range, no higher than about 80%. You need to have the durable water repellent coating on the jacket and working on the jacket. And you need to be not applying an unfair pressure to the fabric, which is then driving the water through it. Now, a top uh, tip here is the fact that there are different kinds of washing powders available. There's uh, biological washing powders and non-biological washing powders. Biological washing powders include enzymes which are designed to break down stains and to loosen heavy soiling. They're a stronger kind of powder than you might otherwise be expecting. The issue with Gore-Tex I have found, and I've spent for my Gore training, they specifically said it, you must not wash Gore-Tex in biological washing powder. It's too strong and it, it damages it. So I know certainly there was an early form of Gore-Tex, which was the uh, two-ply Gore-Tex or two-layer Gore-Tex, which was characterized by the fact that the outside would look the same pretty much as we might expect now. But then the inside had this like weird mesh lining. These are quite old jackets by now. You may or may not remember these. And then inside the mesh lining was kind of, you could see the white uh, membrane, which literally is the Gore-Tex, the expanded polytetrafluoroethylene on the inside uh, acting as a uh, as the waterproof thing. Now, 
it is i have done this on two separate occasions i have uh sad memories <laughs> of the money that was paid and the 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 tears that came uh after it went into the washing machine did not observe what the washing powder was and on the first one it was a two-layer gore-tex and literally the gore-tex was no longer stuck to the inside of the jacket it was just a new nylon jacket with a nasty mesh liner with loads of white crap running around inside it and the second one was a bit of um musto gear it was is it called their br2 their offshore stuff i'm not sure but whatever that got washed in it was not waterproof afterwards so watch out what's going in there if you're really pedantic about it you can wash a half load of uh of of clothes nothing in the drawers and just let all the detergent wash through and then the best possible option is to buy yourself a wash which is specifically for uh, Gore-Tex which is you know Granger's and those people all sell those so just got to be a little bit careful how you look after it but uh, Gore-Tex is incredibly tough as long as you keep looking at that ounce of fabric and seeing is it wetting out is it not wetting out then you can keep on top of the durable water repellent coating and it will last a very long time so we are very lucky now to have uh, Gore-Tex in our uh, the gear that we have of course if you look after it on board the boat you can end up having a pretty comfortable watch now some of the things that do uh, need to be in place the thing with modern um, Gore-Tex uh, and any if there's any other breathable materials that you're thinking of on this one but they all rely on the fact that the internal layers are things which are made up of uh, polyester nylon uh, maybe merino wool but things that will not absorb moisture it has to be what we call wicking underlayers so that's going to be the fact that you may start out with uh, a uh, insulated base layer like thermal base layer those heli hansen things with the stripes going down the side i say that not because i'm sponsored by heli hansen but every time i think of those i think of the fact those um those uh, like athletes pajamas with the stripes going down the side the smelly helis as we used to call them um, they are the, one of the main things they do obviously they keep you warm because they trap a layer of uh, warm air next to your skin but what they do not do is they do not hold moisture cotton is a real problem when you're using it as underlayers on a boat when you're engaged in active wear so we're talking about waterproofs so we're talking about how to stay dry i think we're talking about how to stay comfy as a bit of notes from someone who's who's done some miles you know if you're if it's warm conditions and you're on the boat and you're not going to be getting cold and wet and nasty just wear cotton just wear the things that you enjoy wearing that you'd wear at any other time but be aware that if you go into the water cotton can hold nine times its own weight in water so if you're going to go into the water as you can imagine wearing jeans and a cotton t-shirt and a, some kind of uh, sweater then you're going to be weighed down with all that stuff also things like cotton it, it, no good when they're wet they are not warm when they're wet they hold too much water and it takes too much energy on your body's behalf to warm up that water to then get any kind of uh, you know insulating effect from your from your apparel so we need to have wicking underlayers so it's going to be something synthetic at the bottom some people will say silk some people will say merino wool no problem at all next layer up we're going to have something that's like fleece type layering probably polar 100 which is that very thin kind of uh, fleece um, something which is uh, made with man-made fibers and again the moisture can't stop in it then you may have a thicker layer because you're on a cold trip again it's gonna be polar 200 or polar 300 the normal weight fleece is called a polar 200 that very heavy very very like 
cuddly bear type um, polar fleece thing that you can get. That is uh, called 300 weight. And uh, all of that, again, will trap layers of warm air around your body. This is the newer layering system, which, you know, if you go out onto the hills, if you go out and do anything in nature, hunting, whatever you're doing, this is the way to do multiple layers. So you can take things on and off, get different combos of things. The days of just having like an undershirt, a thick jumper, and then an outer jacket, which gives you no options, uh, th those are luckily, and I say luckily, gone. So we now have uh, multiple layers. So you, where you may have put two layers on in the past, you now put five, but you can adjust the thermostat as you want to. But each layer has the characteristic that it is wicking, and it just, the that moisture that you've got on your skin where you've been sweating, now the heat of your skin warms it up, warms it up to such a point that some of it gets loose and becomes a vapor. And that vapor can then move up through the layers, the warm layers of your uh, clothing, and then it can get to that outer shell, which is the Gore-Tex. And at that point, the membrane, the expanded polytetrafluoroethylene, whatever it is, <laughs> I keep saying it just to try and like drive it into my brain, but I'm not sure if I'm saying it right anymore. But PTFE, polytetrafluoroethylene, yeah, expanded. Um, that is uh, that is going to allow that water vapor out. It's a semi-permeable membrane, and it will allow the water vapor out as long as that durable water repellent coating on the outside has not been lost. If you've got inner layers, cotton t-shirts or even cotton mixed t-shirts, then it's going to keep hold of the water. Too much of it is going to start to build up in the in the piece of material, the piece of fabric that's against your skin, and you're not going to have enough heat, enough uh, time to, to burn that off, and you're going to end up feeling wet and, and nasty inside your gear. So, you know, people always say to me, oh, you know, I'm wet all down my back. These jackets are, are, are leaking or something. It's... Uh, First thing is, for me personally, I always put like a, a bar towel around, tucked inside my collar. Um, I'm not sure if bar towels are a thing anymore. Are they still doing that? <laughs> well, no one knows because we can't go to pubs anymore. But um, the uh, the bar towel you know, doubled over and wrapped around your neck, it's absorbent. It's designed to keep moisture there and hold moisture there. And then I can physically remove it myself, wring it out, wring it as best I can and pop it back in position. You could do the same thing with uh, some merino wool or something like that. That is then going to stop the water from getting inside your jacket. If it is inside there, the only thing that's going to get rid of it is uh, you exercising and warming up your skin to such a point that some of that moisture on your skin starts to evaporate and then makes its way out through your non-wicking layers, out through your Gore-Tex outer shell. If you break those rules, if you're not working, you're sitting on the side deck, you get water, you get, you know, you have been working, and then you sit down wet, you will cool down to the point where it's very unlikely that things are going to transpire out through your gear. Um, and if you're sitting on a deck and there's just water pressing up through the uh, the Gore-Tex membrane, you're going to get wet on your ass. And if your seams, the taping on your seams is getting old or that durable water repellent coating is getting old, you get there's a zillion ways, a zillion ways that you can get wet. What you've got to do is you've got to manage that piece of equipment and you've got to manage the way that you're using it and get the very best from it. And, you know, recognize that we are within the first 200 years of like proper waterproofing <laughs> so we're still early days we're all innovators and uh, we need to try and do the best we can with it so we've got now that the basis of what's going on now, for us as um as sailors there's a couple of things here which start to become important the design of the jacket i'm not i'm not yet going to pick up the uh the, the hallie hansen gear i've got here because some things are just completely uh universal the one of the things that uh, I always find when I'm getting waterproofs is I always spec the correct size for the lower half 
and then I spec at least one size too large for the upper half. Having room to move inside your jacket is very important. Being able to put a thicker jacket or something underneath if you're not going to be moving very much is very important. But for me, it's more about the fact that you won't pay any extra in the shop, but you're sure going to know the difference if that um, collar is not quite high enough and the wind's coming in, if the hood's not quite big enough to get around your, your, your hat that you're wearing and you, you're letting wind in down the sides, if the covers uh, the cuffs sorry, won't cover your wrists, and particularly, of course, if that lower apron, the beaver tail at the back, will not uh, cover over your butt as you sit down, you're going to end up with a cold, wet butt. So I always get the bigger size, which um, for me, I think the jacket I've got here now is a large. I'd have to double check that, but I know my last set going around the world was extra large, and that was brilliant. I felt like I was kind of fortified. Once I got that uh, that zipped-up collar in front of me, I was, I was very happy chappy. You get the hood, like, really crouch down on top of it and you you feel a bit like uh, groucho in his um in his trash can uh and you can just peer out the world at a little like slit of light that's in front of you it's also very good if you're on watch and you've got bigger gear and you're on watch like on the rail or sitting on deck or doing whatever you do a time when you you know are able to sleep a little bit and and uh rest a little bit if you want to you can actually literally cinch down your hood completely over your um, mouth guard, uh, the, um, the, the, the collar that comes up in front of you and, uh, and just basically shut out all of the weather and you don't have to be exposed to it whatsoever. A lot of what we do at sea, because of long periods of time we can be spending inactive, you really have to look after the fact that you've got the right outer layer. Um, I would add to this as now, although this is not a full discussion of, uh, you know, how to keep yourself dry and warm at sea, but always make sure when you go on a boat that if you go on deck there's always one piece of extra warm clothing down below that you know is down there you can be freezing on deck and know there's another fleece down below and you'll be all right but if you're freezing on deck and you know you've got the last of your gear on it's a very miserable place to be so always make sure you've got like one extra fleece than you think you need make sure your jacket's a lot bigger than you uh, than it needs to be, that you're sitting on something and something that is not going to allow the water to press up through you and that you've done all the maintenance and stuff on your gear. And what we've got now is, is a good option. Think about colors. We've got all sorts of colors available now which can fit in with your, you know, how you're feeling or how your crew likes to dress or whatever it is. Um, but when it comes time for, you know, the emergency, the time when this stuff is going to be used, we now have these very bright yellow or sometimes orange hoods, which obviously are the first bright colors that we can see at dawn. We all know, as we've talked about this before, when the sun is starting to get ready to come up in the morning, um, when it's 18 degrees below the horizon, that's astronomical sunrise. You're going to get the first little bit of light where you may be able to do your sights, but the, the, the sun is in the world. 12 degrees below the horizon is when you can start to take star sights. You can see the horizon, you can see the stars. That's nautical sunrise. And then civilian sunrise is when the sun is six degrees below the horizon. And at that point, colors will become defined. We go off of our night sight, which is monochrome, and we go on to our day sight, which has got color, obviously. And the first color, which is available, is always yellow. So you always know when the day's begun. And I take it as being, people say, you know, does the day finish at midnight? Does the day, the day finishes when I can see yellow the next day. So I can see from yellow to yellow. So it starts when I can first see yellow in the morning and it will, this day finishes when we next get to the bit where I can see yellow the next day. That's kind of how I know when the day starts and stops. So nice bright hoods now. We've also got, of course, retroreflective tape on all these things. Whenever a light is 
fired towards that retroreflecting material, it shot right back into the eyes of the, uh, well, straight back into the direction that the light source came from. I've actually got um, retroreflective uh, numbers. The 902 on the front of the Open 60 is retroreflective, and it's brilliant for seeing the boat out on the uh, mooring because those three numbers, 902 together, as soon as I pick them up with my torch, I immediately know the orientation of the boat, and I can tell in a, in a second like if everything's okay or not. I also use retroreflective tape up the mast. It's marked onto the mast, and it's marked, marked on to the headboard car of the mainsail so when I'm putting in a reef as a solo sailor I can just drop the halyard yeah you can put marks on the halyard I know that but you can't really see them too well and if you miss them when they go through the clutch or they're in the clutch you can end up with a little bit of confusion so the easiest thing is to have the marks on the headboard car and you just drop it down my mainsail is very heavy so it always kind of comes down in the breeze unless it's exceptional so it'll come down the headboard car comes within a, a certain degree of uh, accuracy with those marks on the mast. I know, okay, my halyard's about right, then I can bring my Cunningham into play and finally put my uh, reef uh, pennant uh, tight and then I've got myself a reef. So I've got it up the front of the uh, the mainsail, I've got it on the back of the main mast, I've got on the uh, the bow of the boat, retroflectors everywhere, but I've, I've got it on my clothing as well. And that's, uh, now we have those flexible, durable, um, little flashes that can become so important in a search and rescue where you fire your torch out into the darkness and suddenly you pick up one of those little uh, reflective strips and you can see somebody where you know otherwise you wouldn't. So we know we've got the colors, we know we've got the right material it's made for, and we've got a retroflective uh, tape. We've also, of course, got Velcro in there. Let's, you know, it's it's genius stuff. It's fantastic. It gives us all these adjustments on the on the cuffs and on the collars. Makes it nice and easy. Now, on the A gear stuff from Halley Hansen that I've got here, they're using another kind of seal, which is kind of an older seal now, and that is a uh, a rubber seal, which is similar to that on a, a diver's dry suit, like the stereotypical seal you think of there. I've got the jacket from Halley Hansen, which means that it has a zip at the front and um, and then it has the uh, seals on the wrists. Obviously, if you get something like the smock, the smock goes right over your head and then has uh, uh, another neck seal, which clamps in around your, your neck. That may be something you want or don't want in a piece of waterproof clothing for offshore work. Smocks can often be a little bit difficult to get on and off and you can often end up falling over whilst trying to get them on and off, which is a, a, a bad side, but they do create fantastic seals. So we've got ways of sealing it, we've got ways of adjusting it, we've got retroflective tape, we've got colored bits, we've got the right material. Modern jackets now are getting great. So let's have a quick look at this uh, this Helly Hansen jacket and see how it compares to other ones I've got. And that maybe will bring up a few things you can look at. If you go to the shops, you're gonna buy something. If you're trying to work out why exactly is all this stuff so expensive online, and then I'm gonna give you an option at the end of this, which is another way of solving the problem, which I've seen done very, very effectively for a fraction of the cost. Um, and that'll balance up the fact that I'm reviewing uh, gear from Halley Hansen, which um, comes to all told, you know, a couple of thousand dollars of gear. If you're gonna be into sailing and you're gonna be in these very harsh environments, you have to just accept that in the end, if you're gonna keep yourself uh, as comfortable as you can be and as safe as you can be, money has to go out the door, we have that option. But it is good to know that there's another way you can solve the same issue. And I assure you that my second set of waterproofs as I go around the world will cost me no more than $300. Let's see what that's about.
Okay, so the Halley Hansen A-Gear jacket and pants. Uh, as I say, I was sponsored this stuff by Halley Hansen, not just for the, hey, here's some free gear, talk about it. This was very different. This was um, set up um, by Halley Hansen here in Canada and to support me going and doing my uh, solo round the world uh, voyage in November this year. Now, I have to be a little bit careful with this because uh, there's a lot of crinkly, crinkly uh, material here, <laughs> which can become very distracting. But the overall uh, impression of this uh, jacket and pants set is that it's heavyweight gear and immediately as soon as you look at it, you know it's kind of, it's rigged for serious work. There is a very long jacket by design. It goes right down, right over your ass. So when you're sitting on the deck, you're not gonna be getting a, uh, a wet bum. And then it has a, a, a different material, a cordura. I believe this cordura is called a nail head. Uh, and it's that very heavy kind of reinforced stuff. So as you're sitting on the deck, you're not wearing away at your, at your jacket. Now it's got the retroflective tape that we were talking about. It's got it on the hood, as you might expect. It's got it on the shoulders. Um, the whole thing uh, on the cuffs as well here, I see. Um, so you've got a really good way of signaling either by your body in the water or of course by waving your hands or your head being seen up through your life jacket. So don't forget that if you are ever in the water, you know, waving your hands is like basically useless you know you're so tiny anyway and your arms are so small but suddenly at night or even in um, dawn or, or uh, uh, evening is one of the best times for you to get seen it can be petrifying to go into the nighttime on a boat at sea if you're unused to it but once you realize that everything's lit up everything that can be lit up is lit up um, the lights become your savior and the retroflective patches on your safety gear and the lights on your safety gear become absolutely uh, a mainstay of, of uh, people trying to find you. So don't be too afraid if you end up in a situation where it's going dark and you're in the water. This might be your opportunity to use the equipment that you've got to its best advantage. Um, I think we'll start at the top of the jacket here. It's kind of like doing a um, an outside uh, broadcast here. I'm just having to turn 90 degrees away from my bench, but I've got this jacket here and keep remembering to talk into the microphone. So excuse me if I like drift off a little bit from the microphone as I get excited about the jacket, but um, it's heavyweight. It's three ply Gore-Tex as you might expect. So it's got that, uh, that gray lining to it, which we expect with all taped seals as you get on all of this modern gear to again, stop the, uh, the issue which they had with those uh, Ulster and Inverness capes, which was they were trying to cover the seams with another piece of material. We're past that now, but all seams. And be careful if you get like your, um, your team's logo in embroidered into your gear. You can do that, but it has to then be sealed on the inside when it's done. So um, all the stitching should be covered with uh, with those taped seals. And then, yeah, starting at the top, a massive collar arrangement. Um, I'm very interested in a couple of aspects of this, this design. They've got um, uh, a few things here which I'm expecting to see, and then a few things which I'm uh, a bit surprised are not present. So one of the main things is on the collar at the front, you've got this huge uh, collar which goes all the way around which must be like four inches high maybe five or six at the back yeah you know, six inches at the back nice yellow uh, tape around the top of it so that again it's nice and highly visible and then it's got a uh, velcro uh, mouth cover that can kind of go over the front and it's actually got a little bit of a shape into it so as you draw your collar together normally it's a little bit lower at the front so that you know you can talk to people and communicate but then you have this other piece that you can rip off from its little storage place and then it uh, it 
goes across that low central part of the uh, jacket at the front there where the zip is and it gives you a higher uh, kind of mask thing that goes over your face and nose. So look, it's COVID safe as well. You can put this on and go in the, go in the shops. Maybe that's what it's for. They already saw that before it started. The, um, the mouth covering is somewhat elasticated and will actually tuck away into a pocket which is built into the uh, the 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 collar of the jacket and equally the hood which is pretty massive hood we're just going to talk about now that tucks up into the collar as well so you can tidy it all away there aren't things hanging around behind your head and blowing about in the breeze or you can unpack it all and you've got yourself a really decent hood and a really decent um, covering for your for your uh, nose and mouth the other thing that it's got I saw this first on the Henry Lloyd gear going back I think was it called their TP52 or something I wonder where they got those letters and numbers from. Um, it's got little side windows in the side of your hood. So I remember this hood design coming in uh, with low alpine gear. I think it was called the Alpinist. And what it has is it's got a uh, elastic which goes over the top of your forehead, then down the sides above your ears, built into the hood. And then there's an elastic at the back. And what that does, there's extra material made into the bottom of the hood. Once you tighten that elastic down, it grips the hood of the jacket onto your head. And then when you move your head from left to right, the hood goes with you. It was a big feature for alpinist, uh, you know, climbers back in the day. We're talking about like 20 years ago now. Um, and it gave you the fact that you didn't want to be turning to look at something. And then you end up turning inside your hood and looking with, you know, <laughs> half your half your face is hidden by the hood and you can't see what's going on probably because the hood's in the way. So this has got that design. And then it's got these side windows. There's a nice um, kind of bonnet effect from this uh, this hood. It comes way forward of your face. It really can help to cover over your face very, very nicely. And uh, it's got these side windows in it again so that you have that peripheral awareness, which is so important. As we all know, if you're wearing like a cap on a boat, um, you are putting yourself definitely at risk of uh, whacking your head on things. Like I see this so many times. I'm not really sure exactly uh, if I'm ever going to break from my own habits. I do wear caps once in a while, but the fact of the matter is they're not a very smart thing. You cannot see what's directly above you in front of you. And that's kind of where the boom lives. So this kind of jacket has got a nice uh, duck build peak to the uh, the hood, which is awesome. And it's got the other piece of elastic in it, which will snug the hood down over your face you can kind of really kind of contract it down over your your eyes and keep the the breeze away but it's got a wired uh, brim and that's very very important because then you can take that and a little bit like the southwester which we discussed you can flip it up into a gutter and then the water which is running down over your head will not run down over your face and inside your collar and then down inside the jacket you take that you double it back you make it into a nice little gutter and it will shove the water down the sides and, and away from you down the sides of the jacket what i also find with those if you're wearing a head torch and you've got your you know your um a beanie, your toque, whatever you want to call it, your woolly hat on under inside your jacket. You can put your head torch on, and then you can form that that wire around your head torch so that your um, your your hood doesn't start getting in the way of your torch. That's very very useful. The other thing I find with these is uh, very important is that they have this uh, extra piece of uh, Velcro at the back, which then allows you to reduce the overall volume of the hood, which then gives you that option to uh, just get it to fit onto you. It's good to have a big hood which can go over a helmet or, or go over you know woolly hat or whatever it is but if you're not using that you don't want like some massive uh, alien 
you know, extended cranium, like floating up behind you while you're on watch, just flagging around in the breeze whenever you uh, get a, a puff on deck. That can be very irritating. Um, it's got nicely positioned elastics and the little uh, adjustments on the elastic, the little button things that you press. Sometimes they can end up a bit fiddly um, and you can end up with the little tags like difficult to locate with gloves on these seem to be pretty uh, pretty easy to get to and they say this all tucks away into this massive uh, collar which has then got a little piece of mesh at the bottom so water can drain its way back out of it another thing which i like on this is it's got the um the tag for hanging it up is on the uh, on the back on the uh, on the outside. Now I know when I sail with uh, Daniel Dagenet Gore, he always used to put himself a carabiner on there so he can like clip it all together and clip it away after he's done. But it is such a fantastically good sport to clip him into things or other things into him that uh, I <laughs> won't necessarily be going down that path. Um, but uh, it's got this big yellow, very easy to see tag with Heli Hansen written on it, which is on the back where the, the jacket can then hang up. And that's cool because it means once it's in the wet locker, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's drip drying properly as opposed to the hood being flicked back and the tag being on the inside. And then what tends to happen is that it, the jacket is somewhat opened by that process and then all of the wet outers of the other jackets is rubbing against the dry, somewhat dry inner of your jacket. So tagging on the outside is very, very good. Um, the uh, jacket, as I say, has got um, the nail head fabric uh, low down on the back of it. It's, uh, it's not got it on the elbows and things, which I, I might expect. I've got a dry suit set from another manufacturer from um, uh, Ocean, oh, what are they called? Ocean Rodeo, they're called. They're from BC uh, here in Canada. Uh, British Columbia and they do a, uh, a fantastic dry suit which I use for very heavy conditions which is um, I think originally they actually build them for is it for windsurfing and kite surfing and, and all that kind of stuff they're not for sailing but my god they're good and they have the most enormous pockets on the legs and they have nail head uh, cordura everywhere all over them and so I guess I've got a little bit um a little bit spoilt by having that uh, in my life and now uh, i'm expecting to find uh th but you know fashion wise maybe it's not 100 percent exactly what people want it would end up looking a bit like a uh, granddad's cardigan with little patches on the elbows and every which way um we get down to the end of the sleeve here and it's got yeah it's got the the seals so uh i i will let you in on a secret where i i messed something up pretty pretty badly a few years ago um i i've <laughs> Managed to sail all the way around the world with a, a Henry Lloyd dry suit and didn't realize, because I just obviously wasn't there that day at school, that these um, rubber seals, as they're provided by the manufacturers, they are here as a compromise for you know whatever thickness your arms are, whatever thickness your neck is. Uh, if you're the thinnest person in the world, then they need to sell it with quite a narrow aperture. But if you're a bigger person, then the idea is that you can fold these little seals back and you'll find concentric rings um, molded into the rubber. And then you can very carefully cut along that, creating a new uh, edge to the seal, which is slightly less tight than what was there before. And I sailed uh, 43,000 miles or whatever it was. I didn't wear the thing for the whole way, but certainly Southern Ocean. I remember having it on for like 20 days straight. And uh, man, it cut into my neck and it cut into my arms in the most awful way. And it was only, only afterwards I realized, oh yeah, I could have just trimmed that off at any point. So the, the only thing I'd say with that is when you do cut it, it has to be an absolutely perfect cut. You can't have any little nicks in it uh, at any angle to the, to the rubber. Otherwise, immediately it will split. Um, you may consider getting a couple of, I'm going to do it before I go around the world with this jacket, consider getting uh, some extra ones of these seals, which are easily available. I'm sure Heli Hansen 
sells them. But again, we're not here just to um, to, to to go on too much about Helly Hansen. I sort of seem like I'm disingenuous about uh, what I like about this thing. Uh, these are available from all sorts of places, and they're they're very easy to fit, and they're very easy to even fit on the boat with vulcanizing glue. So make sure you've got some extra seals if you have this kind of thing. I'm not sure if this is 100% what I want, but I am very aware with this jacket. I think the overall thing that I've come to after having it for four or five, what is it now? I guess it's five or six months now, is that this is a very serious piece of equipment, which is intended to do a very serious job, and it is perfectly tuned to that job, which is being offshore in very heavy conditions and really not wanting to get wet and uh, wet and cold. This is not the jacket. This is the A-gear jacket, the offshore professional series from Helly Hansen. You do not buy this jacket to wear it down to the yacht club because the first time you have to pull it off to um, hang it up in the coat room, you can look at it like a bit of a fool trying to get your hands out of a, uh, you know, a diver's dry suit seal. So you can't pop it off quickly. That does raise for me a little bit of a question of like, if you were in a survival situation where you're being hampered by your jacket and you can't get away from... The situation because that you can't get the jacket off as the seals are stuck on your wrists um again have a knife in your pockets um you know have some way of being able to do something do not try and go at it with a knife in a survival situation the when i say knife in your pockets maybe i should <laughs> i should clarify what i'm thinking of which is a gerber in your pocket which you can then flick open get the scissors and then cut these things open with scissors if you get very stuck into it but um I guess if you were very careful and uh, there was an adult uh, giving you supervision, you could maybe save your life at sea by using the knife end of it. Um, okay, so we've got the the uh, waterproof cuffs. It's got all sorts of pockets, as you might imagine. It's got some nice warm pockets up on the chest, which are those kind of like watchkeepers pockets, the ones where you put your hand in your pocket and try and persuade yourself you're doing it because uh, it's important to keep your hands warm rather than just you're bored and you've got your hands in your pockets. It's got two of those up on the chest and it's got like a map pocket which is on the outside with a big zip. It's also got, I believe, has it got an inside pocket? Uh, no, no inside pocket. Okay, that's interesting. So it really is just that outside map pocket. Uh, again, if you're you know buying this jacket for what it's intended for, it's not like you need to have every base covered. This is a specific piece of equipment that serves a particular task. Um, they've obviously, it is trickier once they start adding all sorts of interior pockets because then you've got to double up the Gore-Tex in certain areas. They've gone for this uh, outside map pocket and I guess that brings us quite neatly to uh, to the zips on this. So again, we are specifically talking about this thing from Helly Hansen and what they've gone for is that if you think of a, a classic jacket, it has a little flap of material that runs down the inside of the zip and that's to stop the zip from catching your clothes as you, your interior clothes as you zip it up. And then it normally has what's called a storm flap on the outside uh, or storm guttering flap on the outside which then doubles over and keeps the uh, the wind and the water away from the zips not so on this jacket the a gear uh, jacket and pants in fact both use a fully watertight zip so to to take it and actually i'm looking at it for the for the first time very properly here it's like a double row of zips with a some kind of uh well, rubberized material going up the center of it. And I guess the, the gig is that when you draw the two parts of the zip together and, and cam everything together with the, with the, um, with the zipper here, uh, it starts to, it just presses that uh, interior rubberized material together and that creates an absolute seal. So it's a 100% waterproof zip, which is awesome, which means that you don't have that exterior flap, which you'd kind of expect. Um, I will say this, uh, I've been wearing this 
in the garden. I've been wearing it going out to Falcon and working on there. I've worn it in minus 10. I've worn it in minus 20. I've worn it in three storms now working out on the boat. Like I've been out in this thing a lot. No, I haven't been out to sea uh, <laughs> because I've not been able to go out to sea yet. But as soon as I do, I will. And I'm sure what will confirm to me is that these zips are very bloody difficult to do up and take it down. Um, I have learned that you need to literally like grab hold of, you know, it's always a little bit tricky when you've got those zips that can unzip from the bottom or unzip from the top. And you've got to make sure both parts are like fully down on the zip before you engage and try and close the thing. This is like five times more difficult than normal. You've got to really make sure everything's 100% in position and then pull the two against each other because you're basically doing up a like a dry suit seal. So um, I find that a little bit of a hassle. I've got to say it's it's uh, it probably makes more sense again when this jacket is 100% exactly where it's designed to be, which is offshore, which you probably only undoing it again at the end of the watch or maybe once or twice during the watch you're not zipping it up and undoing it all the time but if you're um kind of going to be coming into the boat and maybe doing navigation then going back on deck and you want to take your jacket off so that you can avoid wet cuffs going on the logbook and all that kind of stuff this jacket is going to present you with quite a lot of issues zipping in and out so this is definitely i'd say this is a deck jacket let's put it that way this is this is an offshore jacket that is meant to give the ultimate protection possible from modern materials and modern design it is not uh, your new um you know a jacket for like smoking room jacket or something it is not good at going on and off uh, inside the jacket, a little bit unusual, I hadn't really seen this before, but it's got the equivalent like a snow skirt. Um, it's a spray skirt, which is made of a, a rubberized material, um, very similar to spray skirt on a kayak. It's Velcroed at the front, so as you don the jacket, you then do up the spray skirt. Um, I will say, uh, I'm about as thin as a racing snake on the middle of me at the moment. I've been going to the gym five or six times a week and that's all working out very well. So when I buy the oversized jacket, uh, to get that high collar and that long beaver tail on the back to to keep me dry the uh, spray skirt on the inside is then a little bit big for my uh, for my frame so I'm only 32 on the waist so I may put a little bit more velcro on this just so it closes up a little bit further but um, it's uh, it, it does what it says on the packet what it does is it stops the wind from getting up inside as with most jackets this one has got a series of um, elastics that run uh, around the jacket around at the waist to, uh, to to cinch it up and you can do another one at the at the bottom on this one so that you can uh, close in the bottom of it that's to stop water going up there to stop the air the warm air that you're producing from too easily getting out from your from your gear it's all about trying to hold that warm air up against your skin um, you know, you've, you've got to be able to hold it in some way. So your spray skirt is a good part of that. These elastics are another part of that. So your spray skirt's uh, a little bit a little bit new for me, but um, I, qu I quite like it. The, the cuffs, uh, we mentioned there a little bit about the... Um, yeah, that's a very important point, actually. The, the cuffs on this jacket, uh, if you get jackets which are slightly oversized, what I've found, you can double the actual cuff back on this jacket, and you realize that that material, which comes down and attaches to the rubber seal, is very brightly colored. It's uh, probably three and a half inches wide. It goes all the way around. It's bright yellow, and it's on the end of your arm. So can you guess what that's for? <laughs> you can pull back the uh, cuffs if it's uh, daytime and you can, instead of worrying about your retroflective tape, is get your yellow out there. As soon as you can see yellow on your own gear when you're in a survival situation, switch from your cuffs being down with the retroflective tape 
to your cuffs being rolled back with the yellow exposed, then you've got a better signaling system. And I say also very useful if you're doing jobs on the boat where things like trying to get to the logbook and you know you end up with your, your, your wet uh, cuffs all over the logbook, um, you can just double your cuffs way back keep your elbows slightly raised, all the water from your jacket will run inside that doubled back bit of the cuff and you should uh, not irritate the skipper any more than you need to with your logbook entry. Um, so the jacket itself, yeah, and the one I went for is a gray color. Uh, it's kind of cool, I like it. I like the the, the gray at sea, it's, it looks pretty slick. Obviously we're trying to do things with sponsors and you know the event that we're doing. Um, I do not need to be visible to anybody else uh, most of the time because obviously I'm on my own. But then I have these flashes of yellow which end up being part of the fashion, but they do have that function. So there's all sorts now. I remember Musto used to do that lovely set of grey. Did they call it like their executive? What do they used to call that? Like the executive uh, waterproofs or something. But I used to have them. They were very, very nice rather than always being clothed in red or blue or yellow or orange, which can um, get a bit dreary after a while. The other part of this is, of course, the the salopettes. Um, these ones, I really like them. They have uh, very tight closure on the uh, on the zip. The same thing we were talking about. When that zip is done up, it's really done up. Now, um, waterproof pants uh, have developed a lot, and that's something worth uh, bringing in here. You know, when uh, when when we all go to sea, uh, some of us are uh, men, <laughs> and some of us are women, and both have equal right to be comfy in the gear that they're wearing and unfortunately design had not caught up with this for a very long time so the guys go and stand at the back and risk certain death peeing off the back of the boat because they're pros and they know what they're doing despite the figures um, and then the ladies are going to go inside and go and use the toilet the issue inside there is lots of guys have probably already been in there if it's anything like our boats on the first couple of days and they've decided that they're not going to pee off the back they're now going to pee all over the walls of the toilet which is just awesome if you can make it uh, easier for everybody to sit down on the toilet when you're using the toilet in any fashion then suddenly everything is a lot more sanitary it's a lot more pleasant and it's a lot better experience all around so ladies uh salopettes have now uh, been boosted by the fact that other designs are available. And I will openly say now, I do not know if Halley Hansen has this in ra their range. So you can see I'm, <laughs> I'm not here to tout everything that Halley Hansen's got going, but I know that Henry Lloyd used to, I think Musto do as well. They have a different way of doing the braces on the salopettes, which then means that you can undo zips at the side and the entire back panel of the uh, salopettes drops down, which makes it so much easier. I ended up in a situation crossing the Atlantic a couple of years ago and whatever had happened there was only one set of um waterproof bottoms left on board and i was wearing them and they were they were ladies ones and it didn't completely work because uh they were like a, a medium so they're already getting a bit tight on me and the way the straps went up they went round my my lats uh you know on my back like the the kind of wing muscles under your arms there and they were a bit tight there they weren't designed for me but the benefit of being able to just unclip these things, I don't call you to say well, wearing women's pants yet, whatever. Like I want to go to the bathroom. I do not want to kill myself off the back of the boat and I do not want to go to the bathroom and then be trying to take off an entire set of, um, uh, of waterproof bottoms. So that design is available. So for the ladies out there listening to this, if you haven't seen that, check that out. And I certainly know, say Henry Lloyd had it. I suspect Hallie Hansen had probably got it as well, but it can make things a lot more comfortable, a lot more easy. What the boys get to enjoy on this one is uh, that these uh, double zips on the, the front, I say double because remember it's like a double row of uh, the little uh, nodule things, the little teeth in the zip. Um, <laughs> when you zip that thing 
up to then you know do your business as a guy at the back of the boat or wherever you ended up going the good thing is there's no apron inside normally when you're doing that there's a massive double flap of material which is there to uh, completely stop water that may pass through the zip from getting inside and and wetting out your underclothes that's not there because it's a it's a waterproof zip but when you do zip that thing up and you you know extend the uh the discharge apparatus uh man alive a lot of teeth a lot of teeth you've got to be very <laughs> got to be very careful with that thing so um yeah go and have a look at it in the shops <laughs> see what you think uh it's uh it's intended for a very specific thing let's put it that way um the bottoms uh, have a lot more of this um cordura material the nail head material it's all over the seat of the uh pants it's all over the knees and there's a nice little detail where they've got it around the back of the cuff of the end of the leg um because they always catch on the deck if you've not got them uh, strapped up tight they always catch on the deck and wear out there so they put some more down there so that's good nice big closures on the legs of the things and um you know uh, while we're here i always like to try and share information look at those pants and then have a think about the fact that in the event of going over the side of the boat with only your waterproofs on your next task is to get these off tie smallish knots in the end of them in the ends of the legs and then flick the whole lot over your head to try and capture some air and down into the water and then roll up the hem and then make yourself a uh, a, a, a bag a buoyancy bag out of your waterproof so i always look at them and think oh yeah this is this is cool but my first thought is can i get the jacket off and can i knot these things up into the shape i need them to be and they they're very nice and high underneath the uh, armpits so they've definitely got lots of material there which can capture a good amount of air they've got big pockets on the thighs which are awesome I don't think the Heli Hansen ones have got the um, multi-tool holder. Let me just uh, check that for a second. Yeah, I just had to. I just had to break off there because all of this material. It would sound like at the end of the world if I'm crinkling this around in front of the microphone. But yeah, it doesn't have that um, that little addition which uh, a lot of the salopettes have now, where you've got that. Um, like little double buckle which um, you, velcros uh, over your um, Gerber or, or what's the other ones called leather something or others I don't know I never use them over your Gerber pocket and then um, you know if you end up in a plier fight you can you can win against a Leatherman but uh, yeah you can uh, you want to be able to get to your Leatherman and your Gerber as quickly as possible they are an extension of your hands they are a very important tool so I'm guessing Hallie Hansen is saying keep it in your pocket which means that they're saying keep it in your pocket in its pouch which means they're saying undo the velcro of your pocket wrestle in there and find amongst the tape and the the, the tripping spike and your half-eaten orange find your multi-tool pouch and then undo that velcro and then put that thing in your pocket and then get your multi-tool out which kind of sucks when you could just reach down and grab that um that would be something definitely i would uh, want to change on this and i'm not sure exactly you probably could add one by undoing the buckle here on the side where you, you sort of tension it up on either side but as they've always got it's kind of, the webbing is doubled back on itself it's very hard to pass through the buckle so i'm not quite sure what you do with that I, that's definitely to be um to be looked at you know having for me personally whenever i go to see i have my deck assist belt that's a belt that i designed which um will be selling soon actually um with the idea that you have somewhere that you can clip onto the boat if you need to that it has a, its own safety clip ready to go to attach you to the boat in in an emergency it is not to replace a deck harness and it is not to place a life jacket but it's a belt 
with a, an extendable clip on it. And then onto that, you put your a full-size cutaway knife. You don't really want to be reaching for your little multi-tool in the event of a cutaway accident. Multi-tools are very good at a lot of jobs, which means they're not much good at a lot of jobs as well. I understand that. You don't want to be messing around in the back of the electrical cabinet with your multi-tool, which is all metal with no insulation on it. Equally on deck, if there's a big cutaway moment, you don't want to be fiddling around trying to get your, your knife blade out on your you know three-inch blade out to, to save someone's life. You want a proper cutaway knife. That needs to be in a sheath. It needs to be secure. And next to that needs to be um, a multi-tool, whether it's a Leatherman, jokes aside, or a, uh, or a Gerber. No joking there. Um, you can uh, you can then get to that very very quickly. So I do think they've they've kind of uh, missed the missed the show on that one. Hope I'm not going to find it like halfway around the other side of the thing and look like a fool. Nope, they definitely don't have it. Uh, again on the back, big yellow tag to hang them up with. And um, yeah, you know, there's not much to be said. It's it's a, a again a very heavyweight piece of equipment. These uh, this is not the one to be wearing going down the yacht club to do a little bit of. Uh, Stuff in an afternoon, you're probably being boiled out of your head. It's very thick face fabric. It's got its own insulative kind of qualities to it. Um, but if you're going to go offshore and you're going to um, be putting serious time in, I think these are a fantastic option. Now, for me personally, as I take these offshore, uh, I'd be very happily sticking some stickers on the side of the boat and reporting back to Halley Hansen on their gear and, and my experience of wearing it. But I'm going to be taking... Uh, these this set of waterproofs which is my heavy set of waterproofs which would be good for you know let's say 40 percent of what i'm going to do nasty weather kind of cold not so good when it gets extreme i'll move on to my ocean rodeo set which is a full dry suit um, we'll talk about the ocean rodeo set uh, in the future um, it's a very very interesting product um, it's not in the open sailing market but it's got some real advantages but that's my dry suit and then I have a lighter set of um, waterproofs, which are actually some of my old ones from uh, Slam. They're they're ten years old now, but I've got a, a, a like a racing smock top and a high high set of uh, bibs, and they're much lighter fabric and very little kind of uh, extras on that. It's just a bit of waterproofing gear. And then uh, obviously, if it gets any nicer than that, then you're just in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and your life jacket. So um, yeah, that's the uh, that's the options there. So great piece of kit. Um, I'm going to be looking as I go to have uh, spare seals with me. I'm going to be looking to have uh, tape with which to seal them up. And you know, let's not get too fancy here. You can use duct tape to seal this stuff up if you have to. Um, I'm going to be taking some washing uh, solution and some of the DWR solution. Now, how exactly am I going to apply it on the boat? Am I taking a washing machine and dryer with me? Well, no. Um, I'm going to be wearing my gear for many many days as we know the record is 120 days 122 days is the record i'm going for 120 days and it's going to be upwind so i'm wearing this stuff a lot and i can't be just taking like multiple sets of gear that's not a very smart move so i'm going to have to do some maintenance on the way so how can you wash this stuff on the boat well you can wash it by getting some of your very important and not to be messed around with fresh water um, and giving this a bit of a spritz off it's often good to have one of those garden sprayer things like those pressurizing things on the boat we can talk about that later on and how it relates to taking showers and saltwater showers and all the rest of it but those little garden pumps a hundred mil of water coming out of one of those will have a fantastic distribution that can wash all kinds of salt off you can get rid of a lot of the uh, salt buildup on them in that way being a little bit conservative with the water but maybe getting about a liter to wash them all down with you can then get um the uh the water you're going to use for your wash which again does not need to be very much but a couple of uh, liters you put that inside a black plastic bag and then you put it out on deck tied up 
in the sun with with your correct detergent obviously that's going to be a non-biological detergent rather than the stronger enzyme-based biological detergent and you're going to put it on the deck and as the boat rolls along that tied up black plastic bag is going to get hot in the sun warming up your um your, your water and you're washing up powder inside or you're washing up liquid inside and then it's going to start to to go to work now remember that most of this normal uh, modern washing powder it does not need to be like 50 degrees heat it doesn't need to be at bath temperature it needs to be at like baby's milk kind of temperature and it doesn't have to go much further than that so the black plastic will absorb the heat the action of the boat will provide the agitation and after a number of uh, hours it's going to be 100 percent uh, as clean as it's going to get then what do you do next part Take it and wash it all out in, in salt water. Don't worry trying to get the fresh water to this unless you've got copious amounts on board. Just wash it out in salt water. That will get the detergent out of it. Then you go back and give it a final wash through with a bit of uh, uh, fresh water. Now you can wash things in salt water, but you're gonna have to be using a very strong soap to overcome the natural acidity of the seawater so it won't lather and it won't work properly if it's just a normal soap going in seawater we can we can discuss that another time but um if you can get the if you're getting desperate um you can wash things in salt water if that's really up your street maybe not your waterproofs but if other bits of clothing need it if you've got soaked in diesel or have you not very much temperature required but then get it all flushed out at the end with copious amounts of salt water and then wash off the salt with your limited fresh water supply. So we can use it uh, the in you know quite a regular kind of way. The the, the washing um, powders and the washing detergents that come to clean Gore-Tex particularly. But then how do we get on with the DWR? So DWR can be reinvigorated by being in the tumble dryer. So you can put a little bit on, and if it's a really hot day, like spanking hot day, you can then get it hung up in the uh, against the mast or somewhere it can move around a bit, very secured to the boat. Remember, tie it to the hanger, tie the hanger to the boat. Like it can move around, but it ain't gonna fall off the boat. And then the natural sun has probably got enough temperature in it, particularly like with mine here that are very dark colors, to do a bit of a job of repairing that DWR somewhat. I wouldn't go any fancier than that. You probably could, you know, if, again, you could probably pass like a hairdryer on low heat over it. That might be another thing. I will have my heat gun on the boat, but even on low heat, that's gonna be a little bit too hot for this. But out in the sun, at least, you know, it gives it a chance to to stop that face fabric from wetting out and to preserve the breathability of the of the garment so i'll be trying to do that but realistically for me i'll do the very very best i can with it and then i will be looking to more focus on trying to dry them between watches or times on deck for me so i am now working uh, to change one little area of uh, of the boat of the open 60 to make a mesh hanging closet which has a uh, ducted supply coming in from the small but efficient uh it's a it's a heater which is connected to the engine hot water from the uh engine goes into a matrix like you get in the dash of your car a very similar fan to the one that's down the back of the dash in the car blows air through the matrix and then creates a little heating inside the boat i'm going to duct that with three inch duct uh, across into this mesh um, like wardrobe essentially and then i'll be able to dry my waterproofs because if they stay wet for a long period of time they get completely infused with water inside now it's definitely not breathable it's super uncomfortable to wear it chafes it's a, it's a mess it can lead to all sorts of uh, skin irritation so i'll be looking to try and 
look after this piece of equipment as best I can so it looks after me. And ultimately the reason for doing that is, you know, the more fatigued you get, the more accidents you make. And for me, the more fatigued and the more uncomfortable I get, the slower I go in what I'm trying to do. I need to be able to go on deck in this gear, not get wet, not get uncomfortable, and then come back down below, take it off, if I can struggle my way out of the zips and um, and then uh, and then dry it off ready for, for the next go. So that's what I'll be doing. Now, I said at the beginning of this that I was going to give you another option. And it's it's not, uh, there's no big secret in this. And I'm, I'm not um, selling Halley Hansen up the river to, to point this out. This gear, the A gear series, once you get it, I would say this. And I don't know if Halley Hansen want me to say this, but as my mother used to say, unless it's food, check eBay first, which by now, you know, a few years have gone past since she was last doing this stuff, but she would probably say, check Amazon as well. The point is race gear can come up from these big teams. It can come up quite often. And if you don't mind having somebody else's branding from some other sailing campaign on your back, you can end up with some stellar deals. And a lot of professional sailors get given all sorts of freebies, uh, a, a lot more than I'm luckier to get, but they, they get them from here and there and then they'll sell them online. You can get some amazing deals on gear. So always check online. Uh, you know, and, and be very careful what you're buying and when was it bought and look at the details and all that kind of stuff. But if it looks good, you know, if it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, it probably is a duck. If it, it looks like what it is and it is what it is, then, you know, fine, no problem at all. Um, but uh, if getting this kind of gear in any method is beyond your budget, it doesn't mean then that you can't get good gear. And on a number of occasions now, I've crossed the Atlantic uh, with people who have taken nothing more than that old school vulcanized um what you might say cheap oil skin gear i've got some here made by viking another company is called grundons you might look at but there's a number also that guy cotton stuff those guy cotton bags which are so famous they also do the the um outerwear the rainwear as well it is good to have some of those on the boat because for all of its techno whatever there are a few ways in which um gore-tex can be undone it you know i've had it where i've set off and i didn't realize it but my waterproofs have been washed in in a uh, biological washing powder and now they are not waterproofs anymore they are just clothing i've chosen to put on the outside no waterproofing whatsoever it's good to have on board and you can normally get a set for like two or three hundred bucks you can instantly tell if there's anything wrong with your waterproofs because there's no nothing more complex than just checking to make sure they're not ripped or anything um they don't have the technical design that some of these jackets do woe betide because that's just really a choice you know a bit more material more time in production but the uh, you'll get them and, and the, the best way of knowing if this is the right decision or not is i can tell you that fishermen leaving lunenburg harbor here in the middle of the north atlantic to go out in the winter are wearing grundons and viking gear they're not wearing like super expensive stuff now don't ever get suckered into thinking that the expense of the gear defines the skill of the sailor or anything else we all know that right all the clobber what a number it's uh it's it's the oldest saying or was it all the gear no idea is the other way of doing it right but i like uh, all the clobber what a knobber um if you've got it and you know what you're doing awesome but the ones who really know what they're doing will um like have tape holding things together and the name scrawled on things and pockets blown out and all the rest of it but you watch they are just making sure that what needs to be done is done and they've got um, that uh, that Gore-Tex holding together or whatever it is that they're holding together. Equally, if it's a case of being able to sail or not sail or having an important piece of equipment with you or not having it with you and the waterproofs is the bridge, don't go for something expensive or looks expensive that might 
not actually be comfortable and waterproof go for something that's cheap and is definitely waterproof the the limitations of Gore-Tex that 80% humidity thing um, by the time everything is wet on the inside and everything was wet on the outside because the DWR was long since worn off those Viking and um, and Grundon's uh, waterproofs they're pretty much as good I crossed the Atlantic in 2016 with a friend of mine Keith Davidson um, Chief Petty Officer in the Canadian Navy, extremely experienced mariner, and he came twice across the Atlantic with me in uh, in a lovely set of black and orange. Now I realise now he's a Harley Davidson fan, so he'd obviously gone out for Harley Davidson colours. But um, the Grundons ones in black and orange, and he wore that the whole way across. Went through all the weather I went through, and it was completely fine. Now he's tough as old boots as well, but um, he was not wet in his clothing, so. It's going to give you the best feature and if you haven't got much cash and you come into it the best feature you've got is definitely waterproof so uh i i will be sailing with my set of uh vikings actually here the green ones which i use in my garden there's one good thing about having done the miles i've done is that people look at the crazy stuff i wear and do and say and they go oh well, you know it must be because he he knows a lot it's like no i just got to a point now where i will not be suckered into paying out having this Halley Hansen stuff for what is going to be 40% of my time at sea is a massive boon and I am hugely grateful to Halley Hansen for supplying this stuff because they're going to make that 40% so much more enjoyable but I need to also have a couple of other like tools in the toolbox and I cannot have I cannot have like my second and third and fourth set of a gear so it's uh, I will be I'll be going with my nice uh gardening waterproofs and if i know myself which i do by now i won't be washing them they'll still have all the soil all over them and all the bits and bobs in the pockets that they've got because that will be probably one of the most enjoyable things for me to observe when i'm in the middle of nowhere um to look at my waterproofs and realize they've still got soil on them from nova scotia from gardening will bring a certain amount of reality and sanity back to the situation i'm sure so yeah so that's it so so uh look around there's lots of good reviews we're going to start doing the youtube video things again soon obviously doing a gear review for a set of waterproofs when you can't see them is uh you know is a little bit challenging it's, it's fun to try and do it this way but getting the videos going again is going to give you that hands-on so you can really see them and then uh we can obviously link through to hallie hansen and you can uh go and buy the gear if that's what you want i will say this when we go around the world in 2023 we will be using Halley Hansen A-Gear offshore equipment for our heavy weather gear. It won't be our, our dry suits will be something else and our lightweights will be something else again. But for this range, I've got to say, um, <laughs> I've been sledding in these. I've been gardening in them. I've been out on the boat. I've been rowing in them. I've been wading around. Like I've been doing all sorts in these, everything other than sailing. And I can report <laughs> that they are awesome. So I can only imagine that they will be also equally good when we finally get out onto the water. Good. Well, that's a bit of a wrap up then for uh, waterproof gear and waterproofing through the ages. Uh, it's come a long way in what seems to be quite a short period of time. Thank God for those who worked out that this was the thing that we needed. Otherwise, we'd all be still wearing paraffin infused uh, Sherlock Holmes outfits, which um, sounds a bit nutty, but it's literally 200 years ago. Um, yeah. Check out uh, Hallie Hansen online. The A gear stuff It is spelt a-E-G-I-R. And if you look up what A-Gear is, you're going to get a little education in uh, Norse mythology. Very interesting to have a look at that. But we've reached about an hour and a half. I now am trying to keep these within 
somewhat uh, an hour and a half safety limits. Uh, people tell me that dogs just can't walk for two and a half hours. I know buy a whippet um, that housework doesn't take two and a half hours. Uh, come around my house, there's loads of housework here. But whatever it is, uh, I think an hour and a half works about good from, from my side. We'll still keep the interviews longer. Um, as always, I encourage anybody to to write. I've had a, a wonderful uh, influx of emails this week because I've been back doing these and, and back in the saddle. Um, just if you're interested, uh, the podcast is growing, uh, which is good. We are now getting about four or 500 downloads within the first 24 hours for each episode, which is awesome. Um, if you do enjoy this, uh, you know, tell your friends about it, tell the people down the Yacht Club, share it around a little bit. These things travel by word of mouth. I do not want to have to be the one like putting loads of things on Facebook and LinkedIn and all the rest of it. If you like it, just tell folks about it. It'll spread on its own. It's not an issue. I'm, I'm super proud to be in a position where we've got, you know, the four or 500 people that are listening here. That's the beginnings of a community. It doesn't matter how many people there are in the end. I love getting the emails. I love finding out about what your sailing experience is and where you are, what you're doing. And it really doesn't matter if it's a tub, uh, if it's 20 foot long and falling apart, or if it's some super yacht. It's all the same. It's all sailing. It's all part of the, the great mix of this thing that we love doing. So uh, yeah, feel free to, to write to me and share what's going on. And if you want to go over to Patreon, as we have uh, another two or three people have done this week, Thank you very much to Colm McCormack and to Scott Langer and to Sailing Dead Body One, <laughs> whoever that is, interesting name. Um, to those three, thank you very much. They all jumped in and dropped uh, $5 in the jar. That'll come in each month and that makes a huge difference to this because it does, as you can imagine, take time to put these together. I love doing it, but I do have to be able to somewhat justify the time as well and your kind donations, those five bucks add up and make it all good. We're on like 30, 36 people now that uh, are Patreon. So join in there if you can. And if you can't, send me an email, tell me what you're up to and uh, we'll get along. The next one is going to be about, uh, let me see, I've been getting some suggestions in for what C is going to be for the uh, ABC of boating. Um, at the moment, the one that's at the top of the list is C is for cooking, which is actually suggested by uh, my old man, uh, Phil Backman, who we did the interview with a couple of episodes back, a uh, traditional boat builder out of um, Buzzards Bay there, doing all sorts of interesting things with wood and small boats. Great to to hear from you again. And uh, yeah, he said C is for cooking. And at thought I was like, wow, he's, uh, he's kind of lost the plot here. What's he talking about? And then I thought, oh, yeah, he was actually really good at this. And I thought, oh, yeah, he was really good at this. Uh, and that made all the difference. Then I saw the genius of what Phil was talking about is the fact that a great voyage and an awful voyage can often be defined by the food. Um, it is a major component in safety. It's a major component in uh, crew interactions on board the boat. And I personally feel that that food is very, very important. We, we're saying C for captain, but we're going to downgrade that to S is for skipper. So if you've got a better idea than C is for cooking, then, uh, then send it along. We are going to do more than one round of this, so don't worry, we'll get an opportunity to do other Cs, but um, I thought that was very clever. Thanks, uh, thanks for suggesting that, Phil. That's going, to be, uh, that's going to be a good one if we do that. But that's the end of it for today. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound and warm and dry inside your lovely waterproofs, whatever you've got on, wherever you are. And uh, yeah, I will speak to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.